Come on back to your seat. I want to introduce to you our guest uh, today, Champ Thornton. Isn't that a great name, Champ Thornton? I mean, man, you got to grow into that name. You know, if you're like a little wussy boy, that never works. Champ Thornton. Man, I like that. Uh, we're honored to have Champ with us today. Champ is uh, a husband to his wife, Robin. They have a six-year-old son and twin 18-month-old. So Champ's just glad to be out of the house, just to be honest with you. And uh, Champ is a writer of Bible curriculum and most recently to us is now assuming the role of being in charge of our SOMA uh, Ministries, our School of Ministry Alliance, uh, which is great stuff. And we're honored to have him in that role. And most importantly for us today, He's going to be the one who brings God's word to us today. So I hope you're ready for that, champ. Let's give him a new life welcome. Good to have you here. Welcome again. Well, good morning. It is an honor to be with you this morning and to open God's word. That's why we're here, to hear from the Lord Jesus Christ through his word. His word through the centuries has always made and shaped God's people. And I hope that's why you're here today. And if not, maybe you will discover that for yourself. Before we open God's Word together, just a few words of introduction, because I don't know you, and you don't know me. So like uh, Jay said, my name is Champ, but that's just a nickname. My real name is George, and uh, I, I know you're thinking it's, I got the name because of my athletic ability. I, I can just tell. But the reality is, I hate to disappoint you, that I was born premature, and mom and dad lost a little girl about a year before I was born, and I was born uh, about a year later, and they thought they were going to lose me. And my mom fasted and prayed before the Lord to spare me, and God was gracious. And along the way, someone said, he's a champ, he'll make it, and uh, it just has stuck all these 38 years. So I had nothing to do with it. Uh, but my name is Champ. My wife's name is Robin. We've been married for 15 years, and we have three Kids, Micah, a little six-year-old redhead who terrorized the class here last hour. And uh, then the 18-month-old twins, Jack and Mackenzie. You can tell we were 24 fans, right? <laughs> so for the last four years, I've been working as a Bible curriculum author. And I've also been part of a local pastor's fellowship, the uh, Greater Columbus Gospel Coalition. And that is where I met your pastor, Steve. And about a year ago, actually, and I was immediately drawn to him because of his quiet leadership, his hu obvious humility before the Lord, and his love for the Lord. And then I got to hear, like you have, what God has been doing in his heart and in his life over the last number of years, just a reawakening to the gospel and how it affects all of our life. And to hear him talk about that, like he did uh, last year here in his confessions message, um, I know your heart was stirred and your heart was warmed at the flame that God has kindled in his life as mine was. And uh, so it has been a blessing over these last number of months this last year to get to know him. We went to a conference together, uh, sat down over food and coffee, and I've grown to love him as a friend. And then a few months ago, God did an amazing thing. Having led and taught at Bible institutes for a number of years, I was looking to serve in a similar kind of ministry and then just uh, in the Lord's providential leading, uh, God opened up an opportunity uh, here at Soma and uh, got to know Steve and the opportunity here. And then through conversations, interviews, paperwork, all that, 
Uh, I'm privileged to serve as director of SOMA. And what a joy. I mean, the, the, the bone structure and the DNA that God has put in place in SOMA, thanks to Steve and Bruce and others who've poured their lives into setting up this equipping ministry, it is a tremendous resource for you as a church and then hopefully eventually for other churches in the greater Columbus area. Uh, we're already thinking of expanding SOMA. So for example, uh, the track that was offered this past year, it's called Equipping for Ministry or EFM. It has been a one-year program. Now it is a two-year program. So this fall, starting in September after Labor Day, uh, SOMA will begin and it will offer year two. Now, if you've not taken year one, no problem. You can jump in anywhere. Year two, the next year, year one will be offered. And the year after that, year two, and it'll rotate and you can dive in anywhere. So I would encourage you to pray about that. Think about that. Uh, we're also expanding geographically. There'll be one night of teaching here at New Life Kahana, and then another night of identical teaching in Canal Winchester at Grace Bible Church. So if you miss, you can go there, or you can, if you live down there, you can just go to the one at Grace Bible, and we hope it'll be a blessing to uh, multiple church bodies in the Columbus area. How many of you have taken any SOMA classes, maybe just one or maybe a whole year? Anybody? See your hands? Okay, there's a few. Let me tell you about SOMA just for a minute. SOMA is an equipping ministry. It's a church-based theological training program designed to equip followers of Christ to be more passionate, more knowledgeable, and more effective servants of Jesus Christ through the gospel. Now, you may say, I'm not looking to go into ministry. So it's a ministry training school. That's not for me. Well, God has called all of his children to be ministers. If you're a mom or a dad, you probably, you have a house of little pagans to evangelize and disciple. <laughs> you are their primary disciplers. And being a dad, I know I need help regularly. Whether it's in a classroom or over coffee, I need reminders of how to be a better discipler of my children. Or you're a neighbor, and there are those around you in your neighborhood or in your workplace or in your family that need to have your voice and your life involved giving the gospel to them and living out the gospel before them. Soma is an equipping ministry, or maybe you're wanting to be a better deacon, or you're thinking that God's calling you one day to be an elder, or maybe even in vocational ministry as a pastor or a missionary. Soma is there to resource and equip you, not just to fill your head, not just to prepare for an ivory tower, but to prepare, prepare for real life, person-to-person, shoulder-to-shoulder, heart-to-heart ministry through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it's there for. So I would encourage you to go to the website, which will be up in a week or so, somacolumbus.org, and uh, dive in. We hope to see you there in the fall. All right, enough of that. Let's get into God's Word this morning. Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to the last book in your Bible, the book of Revelation? It's a book about how Jesus Christ revealed himself to the Apostle John. Today we're looking at the letter from Christ to the church in Philadelphia, not the one in Pennsylvania, but the one over in modern-day Turkey. And that's sitting, a letter written to believers just like you and me. 
Revelation chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 7 and read through the end of the letter in verse 13. This is the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. The one, hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, as Jay said, we have 18-month-old twins. And they are at a particularly wonderful stage right now where they really are able to recognize that you're in the room. They know who you are and they know when you're there. And they particularly love mommy. And one morning last week, I came down the stairs and my daughter, Mackenzie, saw me across the room arms up, face beaming, toddling toward me in my heart. I just melted. I loved it. It's like, yeah, this is great. Now, the downside of this phase of life is that they also know when you're gone, especially mommy. So when I watch the kids and let my wife get out of the house or go do something upstairs or wherever, and I have the twins... And she leaves, mayhem breaks loose. I mean, you ought to see their faces. They're just red, screaming, and you, you would think we were hurting them. And they, I guess they call that separation anxiety. And it's just a wild ride. It's crazy. And I have found that as a dad, there are two things I can do to uh, help things. One, I can give distractions. I can find a new stuffed animal or a new toy, or I can pop in a Baby Einstein DVD and that little miracle worker will work for about a half an hour and it's great. Or I can take them on my knee, pull them close and whisper things to them like, it's okay, daddy's here, I love you, be quiet. <laughs> and either of these things will work. And as I was thinking about this, the penny dropped as I'm working on this passage in Revelation, and I realized this is what's in the background of this letter. A separation anxiety. Not from mom and dad, but from God. Let's look at verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, 
who shuts and no one opens. Okay, Jesus, like I said, is writing this letter to real Christians like you. And they're facing opposition to the gospel. But Jesus starts off not by talking about them. He starts off by talking about himself. Because that is what they and us need to hear. He starts off by telling them what he's like. I'm the real God. Yes, you're facing opposition, but that doesn't mean that you've chosen poorly. You've, got the, you've not put your money on the wrong horse, as it were. I'm the real one, the true one, the holy one, the genuine God. That's who I am. But then he goes on to a phrase that maybe is a little bit less transparent. It's a phrase from the Old Testament. He says, I have the key of the house of David. And with that key, I open and no one shuts or I shut and no one opens. What does that mean? What's he getting at? Well, the key of the house of David, the house of David is David is the king and his house or dynasty is the kingdom. And he's saying, I'm the one who lets people into the kingdom of God. Okay, street language, we're saying, I'm the one who lets people into heaven. And whether you receive me as your rescuer or not, determines whether the door is open or shut. And I'm the one who opens and I'm the one who shuts. The same author, the apostle John, says something similar in the gospel of John. He says, I am the door. That's what Jesus says. In John 10. In John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's another way of saying, I have the keys of the house of David. I have the keys of the kingdom. I have the keys of heaven. I'm the one who opens the door and shuts the door. But, and everything in this passage in the background turns on this imagery of open, shut from the presence of God. If there is a door to God's presence in the kingdom and there's a key needed, that means it's locked. That means there is separation between humans and God. Let that thought just kind of spin in the back of your head as we work through this passage. There is that separation. But you know, it wasn't always this way. We, you and I, were created to fellowship with God. God in the Garden of Eden walked, fellowship with the first two human beings, Adam and Eve. And every human being since is created similarly with an identical design to live in God's presence. The church father, Augustine, said it in a prayer wonderfully. He said, you made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. But because of sin, because of our rebellion against God, there is separation. God took Adam and Eve, who rebelled against him, and put them out of his presence, away from his presence, out of the garden, and stationed an angelic guard. You're not getting back in. The door is shut. And most people in the world know this, but they don't know this. All the problems, all the pain, the suffering, 
the temptations we deal with, the opposition we deal with, the weaknesses are all symptoms of an underlying root problem. And that is we're separated from God. And people in the world have a sense of this kind of, and they try to fill it and satisfy it and stifle that separation anxiety with other things. From gaining a sense of identity from our accomplishments or from our children or from our wardrobe or padding our life and making it more comfortable with pleasure from innocent things to forbidden things. And yet this church in Philadelphia, while feeling this opposition from others and just going through the anxiety of being separated from God, Jesus doesn't offer them, here, take this instead. This will make you happy. Here's a stuffed animal. Here's a DVD. He pulls them close and he whispers in their ear, truth. Truth that they can hold on to truth that they can grasp, truth they must hold on to until they see him. Let's dive right in. Number one, in this time of separation, we must treasure, hold on to, grasp the gospel. The gospel. And that isn't the backdrop to the passage, it's the theme of the passage. Let's look at that together. Over and over again, it pops up. But it pops up in words maybe we're not familiar with. So let's identify them. Verse 8, it says, although you have little faith, you have kept my word and not denied my name. On the positive side, they have kept, it means hold, grasped the word. And another way of saying it, negatively, same thing, just a different way of saying it. You've not denied my name. Okay, so what is this about name and word? And Well, in verse 11, he, Jesus says, hold fast. There's that same keep, grasp, don't let go. Hold fast what you have. Well, what is this holding fast, keeping, grasping thing all about? Well, Revelation 14, 12 gives us a little bit of a synonym. It says, here's a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Okay. So it's not just talking about keep the rules, although that's part of keeping the word. It's more than that. It's, yes, keeping the commandments of God, but it's keeping the faith. It's not denying his name. It's holding on to the gospel, the good news. In fact, we have confirmation of that in Revelation 3, back in our passage, verse 10. It says, you have kept my word about patient endurance. Now, some say, and I think they're probably right, that you can translate this verse maybe a little better by saying, because you have kept the word about my patient endurance. The word my goes with patient endurance. When did Jesus who's speaking, show patient endurance. Maybe you're thinking of Hebrews chapter 12 when it says that Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, endured the cross, despising the shame because of the joy that was set before him. So Jesus endured what? The cross. And so the word about my patient endurance is the word about the 
cross. It's the gospel. So have we set down here what the theme is? Again and again, either they were holding fast or he's saying do hold fast. And in a minute, we'll see there's a missionary emphasis. There's a holding fast and a holding forth the gospel. And so we'll just put that all under the heading, treasure the gospel. Hold it. Hold it in your heart. Hold it in your head. Hold it out to others. Maybe you say, you know what, honestly, sin is alluring to me. And sometimes I feel like just saying, okay, enough. I just, I'm tired of the fight. And you feel your fingers letting go, getting weak as they grasp the gospel. Or you know what it's like to have strong doubts of do you have the real article? Are you, is this really true? And your fingers start to fumble the gospel. Or you're talking with someone and you think, I need to say something about Jesus. And for whatever reason, fear, lack of confidence because of your own weakness, you feel a hesitancy to open your mouth and speak the gospel. So Jesus is saying, don't do it. Hold it fast. Hold it forth. And then in this passage, we're going to look at three other words from Jesus that aren't commands. They're strengthening promises that help you keep a grasp on the gospel. So number one, in the separation, before we're home, treasure the gospel. Hold it fast and hold it forth. How do we do that? What's going to give us the strength to do that? Number two, in the separation, treasure the gospel because Jesus draws us close and promises this. I enable the good news. Let's look at verse eight. Jesus says, I know your works. And then here's a little parenthetical statement. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. And then he picks it up again. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Despite these believers' little power, it's not a criticism. This verse, this chapter, this section on the Church of Philadelphia, there's no criticism offered. This section, he just says, you have little power. What that means is you're, you're puny. It's a little town, little church. You don't have lots of influence. You're not super strong. In the face of that and in face of the opposition from the Jewish synagogue in town, more about that later, aside from being in the minority, in light of all that, you still have not turned your allegiance from Jesus. Why? What enabled them to not cave under pressure? Well, the answer lies in the first part of the verse, in the parentheses. Behold, I have set before you, I have given you an open door which no one is able to shut. Okay, so what's this open door? He's not saying you hold the door open. He's saying this is what I've done. What's the open door? Well, maybe you're thinking like Paul says in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians that God had given him an open door for the gospel. Well, that shows up later, this evangelistic missionary emphasis but here in Revelation 3, the context for a door is the door is whatever the key that Jesus holds opens. 
What's the door that Jesus has the key for? We talked about it, the door to the kingdom of heaven, the door to heaven, the door to the presence of God. So he's saying this, I'm the one that is holding the door open. I'm the one that has grasped my hand around your hand, and I'm going to enable you to keep a strong grasp on the gospel. He enables the gospel. It's not our strength to grasp and hold fast and hold forth. It's him. We're puny. We have little influence, but he is strong, and his grasp around us will never be broken, and no one is able to shut. I think this applies whether you're in the workplace and you're giving out the gospel, whether you're own, in your own heart reading and wrestling with the gospel of Jesus. You, brother and sister, need to rest in the fact that he holds you. Now, with our twins, you know how it is. You pick up your child, and then you try to set him down, and what's going on? And they got a hold of your hair, and maybe they got an earring, and you're trying to put them down, and they're holding on. And in that light, I love what Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs, who lived hundreds of years ago in England, said. He said, as we say of the mother and the child, both hold but the safety of the child is that the mother holds him. Our safety is more on his, Jesus' side, than ours. If ever we have felt the love of Christ, we may comfort ourselves with the constancy and perpetuity thereof. Though perhaps we find not our affections warm to him at all times, yet the strength of a Christian's comfort lies in this, that first, Christ is mine, and in the second place, that I am his. So in that time of separation from God, we must keep a firm grasp on the gospel. But don't be afraid, my brother and my sister, because he has a firm grasp on you. And in that confidence, go talk to your neighbor. In that confidence, fill your heart with the gospel. Number three, in the separation, treasure the gospel because Jesus draws you close and whispers another promise. He says, I will spread the good news. Let's read verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. What in the world is going on? What is he talking about? Well, Let's start with this. What is the synagogue of Satan? First of all, this is not an anti-Semitic slur. Think about it. Both John the Apostle and Jesus were both Jews. So something else must be going on here. What's going on? Well, the Jewish religion at that time, they had denied the Messiah. They had denied Jesus. They had rejected him. And so their religion was now just off the rails completely. And they were deep in error and satanically misguided about Jesus, the Messiah. And in that way, they were a synagogue that was deceived by Satan. And in large measure still are. So why is he bringing this up about the synagogue? What's going on with this synagogue that doesn't believe in Jesus? Jesus. 
Well, a little, a little New Testament background here. In the first century, all of the Roman Empire, all the citizens were required to show loyalty to Caesar by affirming Caesar is Lord. Now, if you were a pagan and had, you know, 15 idols on your shelf at home, no big deal. You add one, who cares? Ah, but if you're a monotheist, if you believe in one God, like the Jews did, and you really believed it, then you were in trouble because you couldn't affirm that Caesar is Lord and that God is Lord. And the Romans found out the Jews were not going to get off the dime. And much blood was spilt before they finally realized, okay, this stubborn people is going to hang on to their beliefs no matter what we do. So fine, you can show your loyalty by paying a special tax every year. You're exempt. And they had a waiver. So now along come Christians, followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus was a Jew. His followers initially were all Jews. It looked like here was a subset of Judaism. They claimed they still read the Old Testament scriptures. They said that the one they worshipped was the one the Old Testament had prophesied. It looks like this is part of the Jewish religion. But over the years in the early church, the distinctions started to be known. And the Jews felt the distinctions and greatly disliked what the Christians were doing. And there was opposition. And sometimes the Jews would go to the Romans and go, those people are not us. We disown them. And therefore, they are no longer exempt. So now, as a Christian, you, have, you are not under the safety umbrella of, the, of Judaism. You have to say, Caesar is Lord. So you had an option. You could either kind of go back under Judaism and try to get under there, which he's saying they were not doing in this church. Or you could say, fine, I'm not over there, but I'll find a way to speak out both sides of my mouth to the Romans. Caesar is Lord and Jesus is Lord. And that was the error of the Nicolaitans that Jay spoke about last week. So that's the setting of what's going on. You can feel the pressure, the strain in this time of separation from God before we get to heaven. They were going through it. And there was this opposition. But then he talks about the synagogue of Satan coming down and bowing at their feet. What's this? Well, for this, we don't need to look at New Testament background. We need to look at Old Testament background. Let me read for you Isaiah 60, verse 14. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. And all those who despised you shall bow down at your feet. Well, that's just what we read in Revelation 3. Okay, that's interesting. I wonder what's going on here. The ones who bow down at your feet, they shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. So what's going on in Isaiah? Well, God was saying that all the pagan nations in the world, the non-Jewish people who worshiped false gods, would one day come to Jerusalem and fall down before God's people, the Jews, and acknowledge that they are God's people and that there is one God and they will join in worship of that one God. And that's part of God's plan. This isn't some new thing in Isaiah. Think with me back to the first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis. In Genesis 10 and 11, we have the story of the Tower of Babel, Tower of Babel, where godless people come together, they speak one language, and they build a tower as an act of defiance against God. And so God 
confuses their languages, and scatters them across the face of the earth. Then, in the next chapter, Genesis chapter 12, God comes to one man and says, I'll make a people out of your family. Who's that man? Abram or Abraham. So what's going on here? Well, Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, explains what God is going to do with Abram. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in or through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Ah. God wasn't turning his love on Abraham in order to neglect the nations of the earth that we just read about in Genesis 10 and 11. Instead, God was turning to Abraham and creating his own people so that his people would one day bring all those nations to himself. Through your family, Abraham, all the families of the earth will one day be blessed. That's what Isaiah 60 is talking about. This is part of God's plan, that all the nations would come to Jerusalem and join his people. So, from Genesis to Revelation, when, we, when God says to the church in Philadelphia that the Jews would come and fall down at the feet of non-Jews and acknowledge that God had set his love on them, he was turning everything on its head. Whereas in the Old Testament, Israel had been the people of God, beloved by him. In the New Testament, the people who know God's love and care are the church. Now, I still believe that God has a plan for Israel. Yet just as Israel represented God to all the surrounding nations, displaying what the one true God is like, so now we, the church, are called to get in step with God's ongoing mission for the nations of the world. And that mission is that something we must take the gospel and hold it forth to them. And yet, we're not alone in this. There's a promise here from God that's going to enable us to hold fast and hold forth the gospel. He says, I will cause them to come and bow down. We're not alone trying to reach out to family members and, and, and the neighbors who don't know the Lord. We're not alone, and we just kind of pray that God would bless what we're doing. Oh, no. Instead, when we grasp and give the gospel, we are stepping on board a moving train. This has been God's plan from the beginning, to use his people to give the gospel to the world. I love what Christopher J.H. Wright has said, mission is not ours. Mission or missions is God's. It is not so much a case that God has a mission for his church in the world. But that God has a church for his mission in the world. Do you hear the difference? Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission. God's mission. 
we have a promise, not just a command, a promise from Jesus that when we hold fast the gospel and hold it forth, that we are actually joining the creator of the universe on a mission he's already doing. And amazingly, he promises that through us, he will spread the gospel so that the glory of the Lord one day will cover the dry land as the waters cover the sea. It's always been his plan. And when you give the gospel, you have the omnipotence of Almighty God behind you. Let that strengthen your grasp. In this time of separation from God, we must treasure the gospel because he also promises not only that he will enable the gospel, I hold that door open, I hold you. Not only that he will spread the good news, but he says, I am the good news. Look at verses 11 and 12. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name. So Jesus says, I'm going to promise things that I will do. When I come back, here's two things I'm going to do. I'm going to make believers a pillar in the temple of God, and I'm going to write on them my name. What is this all about? I mean, I've seen cartoons, right, of heaven, and it's got a harp, never one with a pillar. What's he saying to us? Well, think about it. What's a temple? A temple is the place of the presence of God. That's where God dwells. So we're talking about being in the presence of God now. We're in the kingdom, in heaven, in the presence of God. In that temple, he will make you pillars. Pillars? You ever tried to move a pillar? Stability. It will never be moved. The church in Philadelphia, that city was earthquake prone. In AD 17, it was decimated by an earthquake. Most of the people lived not in the city, but in the outlying farmlands. And when an earthquake came in, you run. He's like, you're never being moved. But it's not just, you'll live with me and you'll never get kicked out. It's not about geography and location. It's about relationship. He says three times, I will write my name on you. Now, ever since elementary school, we know what that means. When you write your name in the you know, your back of your kid's shirt or on his lunchbox, what does that mean? It means he owns it. It's his and no one else's. He's saying, you'll be with me, but it's not just in the same room. You'll be with me and you will be mine. These things, in the presence of God, loved by Him, that's what the key opens. This is what the door swings open to. We will live with the Father and His Son forever. No more like Adam and Eve shut out from His presence. No more separation and anxiety on earth, dealing with opposition from the world dealing with temptation and weakness from our hearts. 
We will we'll be home. But how is this possible? I mean, God is the one that sent us out. It's not that someone else put us away from his presence and now God's bringing us back. He put us out. So how can he bring us back now? It's because the only man who ever lived in perfect and constant fellowship with God took on him your weakness and rebellion from this morning, from last night, from your whole life. And he allowed himself to be nailed to a Roman cross and God shut him out. the separation that we feel and the separation that we deserve he experienced for us there's a hymn that's recently been written called his robes for mine his righteousness in exchange for my dirty filthy robes i love the verse that says his robes for mine such anguish None can know. Christ, God's beloved, condemned as though his foe. He, as though I, accursed and left alone. I, as though he, embraced and welcomed home. That is the good news we embrace and that we hold out. And the good news is that heaven is not about golden streets and being with family. The good news is that the kingdom of God is about him. We'll be in his presence. No more separation because Jesus took that separation. No more being shut out. Eternal location with God and fellowship with God. Our name, his, he will write his name on us. He is the good news. He is what makes heaven heavenly. Here's a provoking question that I ran across. If you could go to heaven and enjoy all that's there, but Jesus weren't there, would you still want to go? Wow. Or is Jesus... The one who enables us to enjoy the American dream <clears throat> without guilt. He is the good news. It's about being with him. That's what we were made for. Maybe you say this morning, yet yeah, my heart, my heart is cold. My desire for Jesus, I know it should be more, but it's not. Well, there's good news for you and for me. God knows that our hearts are wired that way. And in his word, we're going to look at two verses in a minute and from the Psalms that are prayers that God wrote, that acknowledge 
that our weakness, that we, that we don't desire him. And if he's the one that gives us these prayers to pray, that means he knows and that means he delights to answer them. Make this the, the beat of your heart this week. These prayers, if your heart is low, if the flame is about to go out, that God would use these verses to kindle a desire for him again, that you were, your spiritual taste buds would be enlivened once more. Psalm 86.11, unite my heart to fear your name, O God. My heart often is very distracted, very divided. It is not united. And it's not united toward him. And God knows that. And so he says, pray this, unite my heart toward you. Make it single. And Psalm 90, 14 satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love so that we would be glad and rejoice in you all our days. It doesn't say teach us about your love. It doesn't say just fill our heads with information about your love. It says satisfy our hearts with your love. That takes God to do it. And he says, pray this. Pray, God, fill my heart with your love so I am satisfied to overflowing. So that Jesus isn't just the ticket to heaven. He is what heaven's all about. That the separation will be gone and there'll be fellowship with him forever. God, do that. Please do that. And beg him this week. Pile the firewood in the fireplace of your heart and pray. Unite my heart. Let, satisfy my heart and pray for God to light that fire. We were made for him. We were made for him and nothing else will do. Hold it fast. Hold it forth. He will enable it. He will spread it. He is the good news. Let's pray. Father in heaven, take your word, apply it to our lives cause it to grow and nourish us and others through us according to your plan. For Christ's sake, amen.